Good evening and happy Friday. Welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle between traditional incumbents and tech monopolies. Usually I do it the other way around, but it's Friday. Uh, So today we're going to jump right into something that uh, many people don't understand um, and the ins and outs of the U.S.-China trade deal. So we're actually going to go into the actual document I'm going to shorten it. Don't worry. It's 90 plus pages long. And we're going to look at a few key aspects of it. So before we go into some of the key sections, you know, everyone talks about um, the $200 billion that was agreed to buy uh, additional goods from the United States. So that's kind of actually all the way down at the bottom of, of this thing. So it's kind of straightforward. They kind of just say, hey, You need to increase your purchases by a certain amount over the baseline set in 2017. It's down on page 55. And they they break out manufactured goods, agriculture, energy, and services. And then they um, put basically the increases for each of those categories. You can see here year one and year two, and you add it up, and it's $200 billion on the dot. Um, And then they actually go... And specify here are all of the different classes and types of products that you can buy for these different categories. So it's pretty specific, right? Now, why does this matter and what kind of impact does this have? So um, it just came out that our Q4 GDP grew at 2.1%, and it was expected it was going to grow at 2%. So a small beat, right? But but still only around 2%. So we've got roughly a $20 trillion economy. So when you do the math and you say, okay, so if you're growing at 2% a year, uh, just, let's just annualize it, right? So if you're growing at 2% a year, how much is that? That's $400 billion. So if you're doing $20 trillion in GDP, that means... The next year, you should be doing $20 trillion, $400 billion in GDP. That's a 2% annualized growth, right? So if you get an additional $100 billion in purchases from China, then that means if you were growing at $20 trillion, $400 billion, you now are at $20 trillion, $500 billion. And so if you were at 2% growth, you're now at 2.5% growth. So in other words, that can add roughly 50 basis points of growth each year for the next two years. Considering that if the U.S. economy grows at 3% annualized GDP growth, that is considered bazongas growth, like really aggressive, unbelievable, unprecedented, oh my God, I cannot believe we're growing at 3% kind of growth. So if kind of if two percent is kind of what we're doing, and then you need, and you get another fifty basis points, you kind of just like cut the delta in half. So two hundred billion dollars. Now the reason why it directly adds back to GDP growth is the way that GDP is calculated. We've covered the calculation before on the show, but basically, you know, you're looking at the production of the United States and 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 the investment that's that's going in or out of the United States, and the last item of the uh, equation is tallying up net imports versus exports. 
When you have more exports than imports, that's a positive trade balance. That number gets added to the GDP. We are a net importer by far. Um, hundreds of billions of dollars in trade deficit just with China and just with Germany. <laughs> um, we've got a lot of trade deficits. That means we import way more than we export to these countries. So if you can now, and then that number, that net uh, import number gets subtracted from our overall GDP growth. So it literally is directly contributing to slower growth by the, that's you know just the math. So if you can now take away $100 billion, which essentially gets added back to growth, to GDP growth, um, well, okay. You know, that gives you 50 basis points. So it's a pretty big deal. Um, and so that's just point one. That's kind of, I feel like that's just about anyone has really talked about when it comes to US-China trade deal. Now let's actually look at the meat of this thing. Um, you know, that's just the one section. I don't know. And most of this section is just these little charts showing what industries you can buy stuff from. But then, you know, this actual section where you say you got to buy $200 billion worth of stuff is like five pages long. It's a 91 page document. So there's actually a lot of other stuff in here, which is pretty important. So let's scroll all the way back up and look at that stuff. Okay. And I would say IP infringement is probably one of the big kahunas in this thing. And it actually dovetails exactly with a lot of the things that we talk about on the show. Um, so, literally, it's page two. It's intellectual property. This is, you know, this is the top of the agreement. We were all the way down at the bottom. So, what this talks about is trade secrets. Um, so basically, this says the U.S. likes trade secret protection and China needs to optimize their business environment to make it a core element of their business environment. And, you know, you kind of see the same pattern in a lot of these sections, right? This is kind of the, the preamble, this, uh, this section 1.3. And then... Um, this is the scope. And so, you know, this is what both parties do. And then it lists out what China has to do and then what the U.S. has to do. Here's what China has to do. Um, so they're going to add to their laws what accounts for trade secret misappropriation. That basically means stealing trade secrets. Electronic intrusions, a.k.a. hacking, <laughs> breach or inducement of a breach of duty not to disclose information that is secret. I think this is like human sources of hacking, um, unauthorized disclosure or use of the acquisition. Of the, uh, basically, all the mechanisms that you're going to use to get someone's IP. Um, and so China needs to do some updating. And then, and then it basically says that the U.S. doesn't need to change anything because the U.S. is all set on this. So you basically see that happening many times over. Here is the big deal with the IP stuff. Um, Burden shifting in a civil proceeding. So the party shall provide that the burden of production of evidence or burden of proof as appropriate shifts to the accused party in a civil judicial proceeding for trade secret misappropriation where the holder of a trade secret has produced appropriate evidence, including circumstantial evidence and yada, yada, yada. Um, it goes on to say 
what kind of evidence can be produced. So by the um, so by the party that's harmed, right? So if you took my IP, here's what I need to do to establish that um, evidence that the accused party. So this would be the 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 party, government, or or company that is now taking your trade secret had access or the opportunity to obtain the trade secret and the information used by the acute accused party is materially the same as that trade seeker, right? So, hey, these people were able to get access to it either, you know, through one of those mechanisms previously described. Um, and we can see them now benefiting from this because, because you know, now they're using it or they just rolled out a new product and it looks basically the same as the thing I have. And uh, evidence that a trade secret has been or risk being disclosed or used by a third party. So, hey, look, there's evidence of hacking here um, and other evidence that, you know, could be supporting that conclusion. So here, under the circumstance of the right holder provides preliminary evidence that measures were taken to keep the claimed trade secret confidential. So if you took my stuff and I can show, hey, I had protections around this, right? I wasn't just kind of waving it around in the air for anyone to come take. I was I put meaningful systems in place, mechanisms to keep this stuff confidential. Um, the burden of proof or burden of production of evidence as appropriate shifts to the accused party. Okay, that's the key thing here. And then it also says, the US is good, we don't need to do anything. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I get a kick out of that line every time. Um, now, here's why this is such a big deal. And they, they come back to this multiple times. Criminal enforcement. What's the threshold for criminal enforcement? Um, the party shall eliminate any requirement that the holder of a trade secret establish actual losses as a prerequisite to initiation of a criminal investigation. This is the money line. This is the big money line. Then they talk about what China needs to do to um, increase the penalties, the criminal penalties that you can prescribe to someone that has now broken these trade uh, secret laws. Okay, let me switch and come back to this and explain why that's such a big deal. So establishing actual losses is not an easy thing to do. So this is a, a big time law firm. And here's an article that they have about calculating monetary damages in trade secret cases. So you, so this this concept of actual loss, it's a it's a it's a legal term. And it's actually very arduous and very expensive and very difficult to establish actual losses, right? So basically it says that at least 50% and possibly as much as 85% of the value of American companies is, is attributable to intangible assets. It could be trade secrets. Um, that this, this report states that intellectual property theft is the second most common fraud in China. Okay, this wasn't like Chinese article. It just says, hey, this stuff happens all the time in China. Such trade secret or confidential information losses, losses have enormous impact on the individual holders of these property rights. Often a company will need to resort to the bet the company litigation to assert their rights to their property. Basically, what this stuff goes on to describe is how difficult it is to establish actual losses for uh, these kinds of things. And here's another article which, which talks about it in a little bit more plain English. Without a doubt, the burden of action falls mostly on the Chinese side. 
Um, this agreement also eliminates any requirement that the holder of a trade secret establish actual losses as a prerequisite. Okay, that's what we're talking about. And it speeds up the criminal proceeding for intellectual. These changes are a tremendous relief for American businesses because they are the ones currently bearing the burden of proof for any trade secret misappropriation and are required to establish an actual loss in order to get criminal proceedings going. Numerous American businesses handle their losses resulting from intellectual property theft quietly because bearing the burden of proof and establishing actual loss are both a costly and time-consuming endeavor. So they do it quietly. Also saying, hey, we don't want to admit to the world, oh, and our shareholders, that we just got hacked and we lost all this value or to our competitors. So basically, if you want to start criminal proceedings in China, you now need to make a statement that says, hey, we just lost a billion dollars worth of value because they hacked us. And you don't know if you're even going to win. And you got to pay a bunch of money to go and establish the actual loss. And you got to get lawyers involved. And it's expensive. And it takes a lot of time. So all of that is now gone. All of that's gone. Now what you do is you say, hey, we have sufficient evidence to prove that we were, we were trying to protect this stuff. I've got evidence here, here, and here that someone hacked it or or paid someone off, or bribed someone, or whatever mechanism they used uh, to acquire this illegally. And look, we can see that they're now deploying it and using it, uh, in, you know, in their facility or to their benefit. Um, so now China needs to ramp up the penalties on this. That's what this section one point seven talks about, and um, uh, it lays out, you know, how then criminal proceedings can can be taken and the reciprocity from you know us and china and these kinds of things um it talks about what the role of the government has to do and then it talks about how this relates to the specifically to the pharmaceutical industry different than say the technology the tech industry so that's a big deal in terms of helping us companies protect their trade secrets it has fundamentally changed the process to be able to start these actual proceedings and see them through. Now, um, if they aren't seen through properly, or or the U.S. feels like the um, that the China Chinese courts or whoever it may be are not acting in good faith, then there is an escalation option at the bottom of this agreement, which I'm going to get to in a second. So, this is a big deal on the IP front. The other part of this is around uh let me scroll down so then it talks about patents it talks about ah counterfeit products we actually just covered this yesterday on the show uh when we were talking about what the trump administration is putting forward to hold uh, u.s marketplaces like amazon more accountable for accountable for counterfeit products what this is saying here this isn't a trade secret violation but what this is saying is let's say you're a u.s product manufacturer and there's counterfeit products being sold on e-commerce platforms in China. Now it's setting out a mechanism for these things to be taken down, require expeditious takedowns, um, and go into all of this, right? And then it says that the U.S. is good. They don't need to do anything. Their online environment's fine. What's funny is the U.S. is actually changing that stuff now, but they didn't agree to it in this agreement. Um, Infringement on major e-commerce platforms. China shall provide that e-commerce platforms may have their operating licenses revoked for repeated failures to curb the sale of counterfeit or pirated goods. 
I mean, this is a big deal if you're a luxury good manufacturer. And the interesting thing about this is you don't really hear, for example, the French LVMH luxury good manufacturers. I mean, behind closed doors, I guarantee you they are rejoicing over these provisions because you want to go buy a Louis bag on, uh, on Alibaba or JD.com. What, you know, do they, it's like they can't even hold a flame to have any influence to actually get these things taken down. We've talked about this being an issue with Amazon in the United States. Amazon policing those counterfeits is probably one one hundredth of the difficulty of getting the Chinese e-commerce platforms to police Louis bags. Um, it's just not going to happen. So now there's provisions for that as well. Um, it goes on to talk about copyright and trademark. And then Section G is talking about exporting pirated and counterfeit goods to the United States. So now this is in the other direction, right? Uh, so how are counterfeit products being sold in China? And then what kind of counterfeit products are being made in China and then exported? Uh, and it covers medicines here and, and uh, things with health and safety risks. So this is actually interesting because one of the reasons that I think Chewy, not a platform company, I remember... Um, was it Petco? I think Petco bought Chewy and then has now spun it off. And Chewy is an online linear e-commerce store for pet products. Um, it's not a platform. They are all buying and reselling. And one of the reasons why they say and their, their differentiator is around quality. And so what they're saying is, hey, what happens if you buy these products on Amazon my puppy eats Stella and Chewy. This stuff is super expensive, but apparently Stella and Chewy does not sell this stuff on Amazon. So I'll go into a pet store, we'll buy Stella and Chewy, or, or we buy it on Chewy. No, there's no affiliation between those two companies. Um, and the pet store says, do not buy Stella and Chewy on Amazon because it's all kind of third-party product that has been put up on there. It might be stale. It might be old. You know, there could be something wrong with it, right? Um, and so that's the same argument that Chewy has, which is the food is now procured properly from the manufacturer or an authorized distributor, A. And B, what happens if you get your pet a toy and, you know, that toy is not pet safe? My dog will chew through that thing in about 30 minutes and then he starts to eat the thing. And so if it's not built with quality stuff, he might be in trouble, right? That might risk his safety. So you don't want that. That's the whole premise for why Chewy is linear and why I think they've actually been able to carve out a nice niche away from Amazon because they are instilling fear, you know, somewhat probably rightfully so in consumers to say the Amazon uh, quality is not there that you're going to get with the linear experience on Chewy. Um, so that's this counterfeit medicine provision. That's this counterfeit goods with health and safety risks. That would absolutely be bundled into this article 1.19. And we actually have a, a good question here. So Petco spun off Chewy. Anyone know the reason? So it was rolled up by this private equity firm. I forget the name of the private equity firm. And so it was a big gamble that the private equity firm made. So they bought Petco then they bought Chewy. They rolled the two things together. They, or they... They bought Chewy underneath Petco, 
And then Chewy just continued to grow. They were able to help it with inventory and, and other linear assets from Petco. And then um, they were able to sell it off at a great price and make their return. But, you know, the private equity firm wants to, they got to get their return. They got to get their money in and get their money out and deliver a return to shareholders. Um, I'm not sure if they're still in Petco, actually, but it was a great move by then, by them and a great example of private equity firms embracing tech business models, not necessarily platform business models, but embracing the idea of taking the traditional business, buying the tech business, putting the two together, and then supercharging this new tech thing that you just bought, and then getting it to scale and making a substantial return. We did a video on it. I think they made at least a billion or a couple billion dollars on this. Uh, it was a very well done um, acquisition roll up and then spin out again. So anyway, good question. Um, so, okay. You know, they go into now trademarks and these kinds of things. Da, 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 judgment. There's other stuff in here too. Okay. Technology transfer. Okay. This is what you hear a lot about is forced technology transfer. So you're saying, hey, I'm a tech company. I want to go do business in China. China says, great, but you got to give me access to your technology. So now this puts in protections to say that a party shall have effective access to and be able to operate openly and freely in the jurisdiction of the other party without any force or pressure from the other party to transfer their technology to persons of the other party. Lots of other parties in that basically means want to go do business in China, they can't force you to give them your IP. Um, it must be, you know, and any transfer must be based on market terms that are voluntary and reflect mutual agreement. Uh, and so it goes deeper into this, how to protect this and put some structure around it um, and so on and so forth. So, okay. And then we start getting to trade and some agriculture things, agriculture protections and requirements. And okay, let's go all the way down to the teeth. This is in the 80s now. Okay, so this says, let's say someone violates this agreement. Considering that the U.S. basically in every provision said, we're good, we don't have to do anything. I think there's only one party that might actually be violating this thing. And that's China. So it has now a dispute resolution timeline. This is a key thing to look at. First thing is 21 days. Then the next thing is 45 calendar days. At first I was reading this and I was like, oh, okay, that's three weeks. No, no, no. These are calendar days, not business days. So this is three weeks. And then this is six and a half weeks. And then it's a month. So in three months, the whole deal can blow up. If there's a dispute and it doesn't get resolved in three months, then basically, um, you know, the other party can just walk away from the agreement and the agreement is dead. Now, before you get to that point, let's say you go through this dispute resolution process and, you know, the U.S. says, hey, you took this company's stuff and you are not acting in good faith to make this company whole. You're not holding the accused party accountable, you know, the, or, or let's say you're not buying the agriculture uh, goods or you're not buying the, you know, the you're supposed to buy $100 billion of stuff. You bought $50 billion of stuff. 
basically within this whole thing, if the parties do not reach consensus on a response, the complaining party may resort to taking action based on facts provided during the consultations. That's the dispute resolution. Including by suspending an obligation under this agreement or by adopting a remedial measure in a proportionate way that it considers appropriate with the purpose of preventing the escalation of the situation and maintaining the normal bilateral trade relationship. That basically means hashtag tariffs. And we're going to wield the hammer and put, or put, I don't know, uh, you know, sanctions or whatever, whatever um, the U.S. decides as a penalty on the accused party or the party complained against is what they call it. Um, and, uh, and, and the U S basically has the unilateral ability to keep the trade agreement in place to say, Hey, you're not acting in good faith to enforce this. We are going to take our own separate action or, uh, you know, whatever they call it here, remedial measure, um, to make sure that we are made whole. And then it gives them the ability to keep the agreement in place. If the party complained against, so let's just say that's China, considers that the action by the complaining party pursuant to the subparagraph was taken in good faith. This gives them the out. This gives China the out to say, if they think that the U.S. acted in good faith by putting tariffs back onto their stuff because this agreement wasn't lived up to properly, the party complaining against China may not adopt a counter response or otherwise challenge such action. So this means that if we acted in good faith, this agreement wasn't being upheld, we being the U.S., we put tariffs back on you. You, China, can't counter that response and then put tariffs on our stuff, and then we're back into the trade war, right? Um, if the party complained against considers that the action of the complaining party was taken in bad faith, the remedy is to withdraw from the agreement and blow up the agreement. And then we are back to square one. Which they could do. But again, China does not want the trade wars to come back. And I think especially with the other health-related things going on in China, they need the economy to be in as good as a place as it can be I hope all those other things get figured out as soon as possible and all action is taken uh, and everyone kind of can, can hopefully come out of this as best they can. But that said, you know, I think pretty clearly you can see where the leverage stands. You can all read this agreement yourself. But in the sense that who's going to be violating this thing, there's almost nothing here for the U.S. to violate. It's really just if China is going to violate these actions or not live up to them. And then the U.S. can bring back the pressure. And then China gets to decide if they're going to take this back to the brink and blow up the whole agreement and we're back to square one. I don't think they're going to do that, though. Um, but this gives the mechanism for the governments to decide if maybe, say, the rest of the country, because just because just because I mean, President Xi has a lot of power, but they are changing laws. They need other courts to play ball with this. You know, there's a lot of moving parts for this thing to come about. Do they actually buy $100 billion worth of stuff? You know, there's a lot of moving parts to this. So it may not all um, be executed upon properly. 
But that allows the Chinese government to basically help make this thing whole. Uh, or the U.S. government to do that, and then the Chinese government say, you know what, you're actually right. For whatever reason, this didn't work out the way it was supposed to, and we're not going to take a counteraction. Well, actually, they can't take any counteraction. They can't raise tariffs because we put on tariffs. They can only decide to blow up the deal, which is a pretty big decision. So they have to be pretty grumpy with whatever the U.S. did, right? There's no kind of intermediate like tit for tat. The tit for tat is gone. It's either, we're okay, we'll take the blow. I think you're right, U.S. Or no, we're done with this and blow the whole thing up. It's, it's against the extreme. Um, so that's pretty interesting the way they structure this. So let's go into what is platform design, a topic that um, is maybe a little bit more fun to talk about. So, um, Platform design talks about platform business models and platform business models. They don't own the means of production. They create the means of connection, right? These businesses create value by facilitating the exchange of value. And in platform design, it's about saying, hey, what are small little hacks, manual hacks? How can I give a small team uh, very little time and very little money to go and try to launch a platform business in two weeks? How could you use off the shelf tools? How could you go and drive traffic to landing pages to go talk to consumers, talk to producers and see, hey, can I do a core transaction? Can I go end to end using a bunch of SaaS tools or you know different pre-existing things? I'm not writing any code. I'm doing a bunch of unscalable manual hacks. I'm making phone calls. I'm doing a bunch of manual activities that don't scale. That's the whole point. But what you're testing is what is the level of expectation in the consumer or the producer? Because if I can have a arguably very bad experience, anything you're standing up in two weeks is not going to be a slick experience, okay? But the point is you're testing what is the expectation of both the consumer and producer. Because if you can do a handful of core transactions in a month, that's actually pretty amazing. And what that means is, hey, what if I was to invest a lot more money into technology, into the brand, into marketing, into ops? And I was to actually try and build a real business around this. Okay, maybe there's something there. Because if the consumer and producer expectation is willing to deal with me in a very slow, clunky, not streamlined process and experience, okay, if I invest more into this, I should be able to scale that. That's a very simple, dumbed-down version of how you can kind of think about doing these manual hacks and what you're trying to test. You're also going to learn a lot about the market. Who are the potential consumers and producers? You can test a bunch of different core transactions. What are the KPIs? What, you know, what's my LTV? What's my CAC? Lifetime value, cost of customer acquisition. You really want to try and have at least a three to one uh, ratio between those two things if you're going to have a viable business. You're not going to get that in the hacks, but you're going to start to understand what that CAC is initially. It's going to be probably hard for you to calculate a good LTV, but you can start to kind of see roughly what the CAC is. Now you can take this market data. And you can now pair that up with your other market research, competitive landscape. You can do some qualitative, quantitative consumer, producer surveys. And then the other part of this is to go talk to the rest of the tech startups and potential partners. Who are the incumbents? Who are the, say, large traditional uh, uh, enterprises that you could partner with? And now 
when Applico does platform design, we're doing this on behalf of a large traditional enterprise. And what we're looking at is to take this real live market data from the hacks, to take the data from talking to all of the heads of the tech startups, potential entities that you could partner with or do JVs with, and then analyze here are the assets from the traditional business. What kind of demand could I tap into? What kind of digital demand do they have? What kind of analog demand do they have? What kind of supply or pricing or data do they have that I could use to uh, benefit my algorithms or um, you know, core transaction? Uh, what kind of value-added services do they have that I could layer in on top of my platform business? What kind of brand value do they have with consumers and producers? What's their balance sheet like? And you can start to then use that to say, okay, what does my business model look like? We think here's the best platform opportunity. Here are the advantages and the assets from the core business. And ultimately what you're trying to say is, how could I capture this platform opportunity? And along that level of that train of thought and that analysis, what you need to think about is, what am I going to build from scratch? There's always going to be something to build. Is it a build and buy? Is it a build and partner? Is it a create a JV and buy? Is it a, um, you know, I'm going to go make a strategic investment in what I think is going to become the dominant platform. And then I'm going to layer in my, my in intrinsic assets on top of that thing. And you got to build some stuff to expose those assets. It could be a whole range of build, buy, partner, and invest. But what is the best way to navigate that landscape? Could be multiple of those options to arrive at that platform opportunity. And, you know, there's multiple levers to this, right? You could say you have, if you're going to only build, you got a longer timeline, higher risk, but if successful, lower potential overall cost, maybe. If you're going to build and buy, you're never going to just usually buy on your own. Usually you want to try and you got to build to expose your intrinsic assets and layer them into the acquired entity. Um, but if you're going to build and buy, you know, what are the gaps that I have from a technology standpoint? Uh, whatever I'm buying, am I getting demand, supply, or both? You're also getting an existing team. You're getting a team that understands the industry, that is passionate about the industry. And that saves you a lot of time. You know, you, you need a team to go run this new platform entity of yours. Okay, what's that worth? Um, so how am I, how are you... And weighing all of these different variables to figure out the best path. What does the board want in terms of a timeline for break-even? Very hard to project that out if you go entirely build from scratch. A little bit easier and to do that and with a higher degree of confidence if you're looking at some mixture of build by partner invest, right? Um, so how do you do that? And, you know, that's all a part of platform design is to build that business case to figure out here's the best starting point. And here's the path to arrive at some point of critical mass, some point of break even, where now I have a platform entity that either I own outright and is now on its way to being that dominant platform in my space, or I own a significant share of what is going to become the dominant platform. And that's what platform design is going to get you. It's now going to set you up to now, if you're a large traditional enterprise, to take those findings to discuss them internally, to discuss them amongst the executive team, to discuss them with the board, to uh, make a decision about, A, do you want to go forward or not? 
And then B, if you do want to go forward, what paths make the most sense to go down, right? Build, buy, partner, invest. Which of these, one or multiple, make the most sense to explore? And then you're going to start to engage in conversations. If it's a build and buy, if, it, if it's anything but just build entirely build from scratch, if it's anything but, now you're going to engage in conversations with these other third parties. Those other third parties could, again, be different tech companies. They could be platform entities that you're looking at buying or investing in or partnering with. They could be linear tech companies. Maybe there isn't a good platform in the market, but maybe there are linear tech companies that help solve for demand or supply that maybe you want to turn them into a platform, or maybe you have the demand and you don't have the supply and you can buy a linear tech company on the supply side and help accelerate your ability to open up and capture supply. Whole range of options on this. But now you need to engage in those conversations, get your strategic or corp dev department or whoever it is involved in that and start talking to the different tech players, the different potential partners or people that you could create a JV with, that's joint venture. Um, you know, maybe you want to try and hedge this a little bit, maybe, or maybe you have some intrinsic assets, but maybe someone else has really good complementary assets. You already have a relationship with them. If the two of you partnered up and created a JV and then say acquired one of these tech companies, okay, you know, now we've got a very high degree of confidence that this thing's going to be a win. Lots of options in that space. Net, net, what you're trying to accomplish in platform design, you run that whole time horizon out is in three months, you're on the ground doing the work in platform design. Over the course of a two to three year period of time, assuming there's a, a build and buy partner or invest options on the table, how do I have platform business that I own outright or that I own a significant chunk of that will achieve a strong point of critical mass where it has the high likelihood of being the top one or two uh, players in a winner-take-all platform environment with a path to profitability. Maybe it is not break even in two to three years, but I have a high degree of confidence that I understand where the break even point is and me as an executive team and my board can be comfortable with investing in this and going down that path. That is the vision, a two to three year timeline to now have spun out or have a separate platform entity which is set up to win on a timeline and a level of investment that the traditional business is comfortable engaging in. That's three months on the groundwork to get to that point. That's platform design. Okay, so don't be like McDonald's. We've talked a lot about, we've talked a little bit about McDonald's. Um, I was just presenting at the NAW National Association of Wholesaler, their executive summit. B2B distribution has a lot of opportunity. It's a $6 trillion industry. I think it's actually bigger. Uh, it's act arguably the biggest industry in the United States economy. Healthcare is three trillion. Consumer retail is like two and a half. It's massive. So anyway, one of my messages was, "Don't be like McDonald's." And you can see here these different options: invest, partner, JV, roll up, acquisition. You know that definitely acquisition is on the far right. Um, with Walmart buying Jet and then Flipkart. But the message here is. If you're a large traditional business, you have a lot of advantages. How are you taking advantage of an inevitable platform future and using your, in, your intrinsic strategic assets to give you a stake in the platform future? Because in many of these industries, the platform future is actually pretty clear. You can kind of see where it's going. 
B2B distribution is probably one of the clearest. <laughs> it doesn't take a scientist or a genius to say that there's going to be marketplaces in B2B distribution. Look at Amazon business. It's a $15 billion GMB business projected to quintuple in the next four years. I think it's going to be probably between 75 to $100 billion in GMV by 2023. It's a marketplace. We've seen the marketplace story for however 20 plus years now in B2C. Not a big leap to say there's going to be marketplaces in B2B. Anyway, the McDonald's story is that McDonald's had an exclusive uh, deal with Uber Eats for over two years to exclusively use Uber Eats as their uh, food delivery platform. They didn't get any economics. They didn't get any equity in Uber Eats for this deal. They got some preferential pricing treatment. They didn't even get like a non-compete, like we're not going to list other uh, competitors to you, McDonald's, you know, for a certain amount of time. Nope, none of that. They need to figure out delivery. They're way behind on delivery. So they partnered with one player, went all in with Uber Eats. Uber Eats, probably behind the scenes, was snickering how dumb McDonald's was. There was plenty of articles that said that Uber Eats actually built their entire international business on the backs of McDonald's. And McDonald's accounted for over 10% of the supply on Uber Eats internationally. I mean, when you talk about solving for the chicken and egg problem, and that's what these intrinsic assets of these traditional businesses do, they solve for scale and, the, and demand and supply, right? I mean, I have McDonald's supply internationally in the bag, only on Uber Eats. And by the way, remember that internationally, the brand of McDonald's I would argue might actually be stronger than in the U.S. It's not as inexpensive as an option, right? In, in many of these emerging markets, it's actually kind of like a premium uh, restaurant, right? Because they have really good quality standards and, 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 uh, and safety and health rules that they prescribe to. And so, you know, it, it can actually be more of a premium establishment than a fast food um, more economical option than it is in, in, in more mature economies like the U.S. It's a big deal. Uh, and McDonald's didn't get anything material out of this. Now McDonald's works with all the uh, delivery platforms or certainly more than just Uber Eats. And what do they have to show for it? Nothing. Meanwhile, what does Uber Eats have to show for it? They're the biggest food delivery platform in the United States and huge internationally. So there's other examples on here um, like Symphony and Zelle, the banks are really good at this, about doing these big JVs and then buying a company and, and having it be a platform. So they bought this, I think it's called like Clear Warning Alerts or Clear Warning Systems or something like that. It had all of the payment platform infrastructure, pipes, wasn't a platform though. And then like 20 of the biggest banks in the US teamed up, bought it. Turn it into this thing called Zelle. Now Zelle does more volume than Venmo. So it's pretty successful. Actually did more volume than Venmo in like two years. Symphony is a messaging and chat communication platform for traders. Because it was that the Bloomberg reporters were spying on the trade activity of people using the Bloomberg terminal. Big no-no. Banks did not take that too kindly. Created a JV. 20 plus banks. Bought this company called Symphony. Now that's the tool, the communication collaboration tool platform that all their traders are using. For Zelle, I think they now have over 50 banking partners and have vastly now eclipsed the volume of Venmo. 
These are great partner JV examples. You, J, you create a JV, you buy a company. It's almost a guaranteed win. I mean, it's very hard to mess it up. They have the tech. All the biggest players just bought it. They all adopt it. I mean, what are you going to do? Lose, actually. That's what you're going to do. So um, we've talked about Walmart. We've talked about Foot Locker. Naspers and SoftBank, they were not anywhere near in the business. They weren't even in China. Maybe SoftBank was a little bit, but SoftBank is a bank. They invest in this small company you may not know of called Alibaba, owned over 30% of it for, I don't know, small investment, tens of millions of dollars, made billions and billions and billions of dollars. And that's how they've been able to fund the Vision Fund and all of these um, other tech and platform investments that we've been covering. Naspers, same thing. It's a media company out of South Africa, put like $30 million into a, another small company called Tencent. And I think at one point almost owned about 40% of Tencent. Crazy. They have now gone on to go and buy other platform marketplaces. They have a division called OLX. Think of it as like a bunch of Craigslist internationally. They've like rolled up a bunch of like Craigslist kind of shopping, uh, you, you know, kind of like um, marketplace 1.0 type Craigslist businesses. And they've made a bunch of other digital and tech investments as well with, with the funds that they've gotten from these very early stage investments. These were honestly just straight investments. This is much harder to replicate. The partner JV model, um, you know, uh, Foot Locker put $100 million into GOAT, a sneaker marketplace. This isn't just an investment. This is a strategic partnership. Foot Locker's on the board of Foot, I mean, Foot Locker's on the board of GOAT. They are helping GOAT secure exclusive inventory for manufacturers. So Foot Locker has a lot of leverage with manufacturers. How can you get exclusive inventory to be sold first on GOAT? That's one thing. How can you help GOAT solve for demand? How can you help them get, you know, now they're, they're putting some consignment sneakers into Foot Locker stores. And I think eventually probably figure out how to put them online. Um, so how can you help Foot Locker? I mean, GOAT solve for demand and supply. And Foot Locker can do that in a lot of ways. There's a lot of ways to solve for this. You don't need to necessarily buy the platform outright, but how can you get a significant stake in it and help it win? Um, it's also a pretty good option if it's inevitable that you're going to have you'd be playing in a platform future. So going back to the SoftBank stuff, um, there's a few articles here. So let's start with this one. So Mato buys Uber Eats. Uh, business in India. We've spoken before about how Uber and Dara is saying we're either number one or number two, or we're out, right? There's no place for a third winner. So they've sold off Uber Eats in India. Now you're seeing these other articles come out like Uber and DoorDash held merger talks after SoftBank push. SoftBank was saying, hey guys, can you try to merge? And they held conversations. SoftBank's a big investor in both of them, but they could not come to terms. They could not agree. So that is off the table. Now, there's another article saying that um, SoftBank has funded Uber, Didi, which is the Chinese ride-sharing um, competitor, and Rappi. What it's saying is that SoftBank basically started to invest in all these companies with similar business models that now compete with each other. And the spending wars that we've now seen drastically really come to a complete halt or, a, you know, or are moving to a halt were fueled by SoftBank. And if you want to go one extension further, you could say it was fueled by Alibaba too. Because that's where SoftBank got all this crazy money to go and put into these companies. 
Um, so you reap what you sow, right? Um, but that's obviously coming to a halt. And, and now SoftBank kind of helped create this environment. And then they're clearly trying to uh, put the brakes on it. Last one is we spoke yesterday about Epic. Bad Epic. Epic, E-H-R, Epic. Um, well, there's another Epic, which owns this thing called Fortnite, which is also owned by Tencent. Tencent understands platforms pretty well. Yes, they do. Steam was the dominant, pretty much only player as a video game marketplace for PCs. Um, so, you know, you could, you could download and buy games through the Steam platform on a PC computer. You could also do a bunch of other things like buy, um, you know, digital items and, and digital goods like skins for your gun and Counter-Strike and all this crazy stuff. But Epic said, you know, we want to get into this space too. So how do you compete with an established platform? Steam is very established, very well-to-do platform company, strong business. So what do they do? They lock up exclusive supply. They went, so they call this the PC digital distribution war. This has really just happened in the past year or so. So the store launched in 2019. And they went to secure uh, exclusive inventory. Epic Game Store began to sign exclusivity deals with a number of game developers. So they made these massive payments. So 505 Games, the publisher of Remedy Entertainment's new game Control, has provided a surprising look into its PC exclusivity deal with Epic Games. Digital Bros, uh, the parent company, um, Epic Games provided a payment of $10 million for exclusivity on the PC. So they're giving them, you know, they're doling out big money to lock up exclusive inventory. This is a great lesson for other platforms that want to come into an environment with more established platform. Where else have we seen this? With Microsoft's Mixer, I think it's called. It's their Twitch competitor. And what do they do? What's that version of exclusive inventory? Ninja. What they did is they gave Ninja and then this other, I don't know, probably a few other people, exclusivity deals to only do their live streaming on Microsoft's platform, not Twitch. Twitch did not like that. And it's working. Microsoft's Mixer has also been gaining share. Um, you saw this in Xbox versus PlayStation Wars, where Xbox would go buy publish. Actually, they would go to the nth degree. Not only would they get exclusivity for certain games, which they've all done, but then they went to go buy like Bungie, which would make Halo, for example, and, and just buy the whole studio. So you've seen this this play, uh, you know, happen time and time again. It's it's an expensive strategy, but it'll certainly if if you know that demand wants this product or to watch this content or to play this game, then it can work. It can certainly start to get you some demand in the door. Um, so signing off for the week. Have a great weekend, everyone, and I'll talk to you soon.